Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2. We are picking up where we left off last week. We ended by looking at this first of Jesus' signs that He performed in Cana in Galilee where He changed the water into wine. Now we are looking at another portion that is not necessarily called a sign, but is indeed uh, one. Uh, It is one that demonstrates who Jesus is. It demonstrates the new changes that are beginning to take place in the new age of the Messiah. So I want to begin by reading from John chapter 2, verse 12. We'll read down to verse 22. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume Me. So the Jews said to Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word. Jesus had spoken. Would you pray with me? Father, when You created us in Your image, male and female, You made us to be creatures of worship. Creatures who were to reflect Your glory, who were to reflect Your attributes, who You were primarily in our worship of You. We were made to be a people, a race, a humanity that found its greatest joy in delighting themselves in You. Father, as sin entered into the world through our disobedience, all of that was reversed. And the hearts that were to have found their rest in You found their rest in the things You made. Father, we have become a people who are fundamentally idolatrous at heart. Lord, we know that Your Son has come into the world to restore all things. To give us new hearts that worship in spirit and in truth. So Father, we pray that as We consider the Word this morning from John chapter 2 and we see 
your very own Son being consumed with absolute zeal for the purity of worship. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are aiming at this very goal. Worship would not be some addendum to our lives, but would be the very culmination of all things. So Father, give us the hearts that were in Christ and the desire to worship You all the days of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Well, one of the great themes of not only John's Gospel, uh, but of the rest of the other Gospels, as well as the rest of the New Testament writings, one of the things they are doing for us is demonstrating from multiple points of view the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Scripture. And as it demonstrates this point, it doesn't do so by only pointing us to individual verses of Scripture in the Old Testament as examples of Jesus fulfilling Scripture. It does do this. We do find the New Testament doing this, quoting particular individual verses of Scripture as examples of Jesus fulfilling them. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew very plainly says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then we find him quoting a specific verse of Scripture, Micah 5.2, that itself says that the future ruler of God's people, the future ruler of Israel, and the one who will shepherd His people, will come from Bethlehem. So, the New Testament is, is certainly doing that, quoting individual verses to demonstrate Jesus fulfilling them. But that's just one of the ways. One of the ways in which fulfillment is demonstrated. Fulfillment actually goes far beyond just individual verses of Scripture. It goes beyond them and goes into the realm of pictures and images and institutions. Fulfillment in the New Testament encompasses the whole of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, for example, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Come to fulfill them. The law and the prophets. That's... That's another way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament. We, we call what we have as the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament because we now have a, a New Testament, a new covenant, and a new age has been introduced into the world through the coming of Jesus. But if you had been a believer and follower of God in Jesus' day, even before Jesus' day, you wouldn't have referred to your Bible as the Old Testament would have referred to it as the Law and the Prophets. Or the Law and the Prophets and the Writings. You would have described it as the way that it was organized. And so Jesus here is saying, I came to fulfill all of it. Not just individual verses, but every aspect of what you see in it. In other words, when He says, I came to fulfill it, He is saying, I came to be that which it all pointed to. I am the climax. I am the culmination. I am the end goal to which they were all moving. The promises, the laws, the institutions, the land, the promise of the land, the priests, the sacrifices, the prophets, the judgments, the deliverances, they all provided in themselves signposts to a particular destination. And Jesus is saying, I am that destination. 
I am the point to which they are all moving. That is what it means for Jesus to be the fulfillment of Scripture. Everything central to the Old Testament is central because it is pointing to Christ. Now several weeks ago, we we saw that John is laboring. Laboring for us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. And we saw it especially in John chapter 1, verse 14. That famous passage about the incarnation of the Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as we saw very literally, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John in this verse is providing us with the image of the tabernacle, which would eventually become the stationary temple. The tabernacle and the temple was the place where God was with His people in a very unique way. It was the place where He revealed His glory. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the tablets of stone were kept. It was the place which contained the Holy of Holies. The place that not just anyone could enter, but the place in which only the high priest could enter once a year. Because if you treated this place as just any old place, if you treated the place where the very presence of God was, and you treated His worship as something cavalier, we saw in the Old Covenant there were consequences. You cannot enter into the presence of God unclean. You cannot enter into the presence of God stained with sin or His very presence will bring to you death. The presence of the tabernacle and the presence of the temple symbolized the unique presence of God with His people. When they were in the wilderness, before they entered into the land, before they were entering into any city, the tabernacle, the tent of God, would go before them, symbolizing that He was with them and going before them and giving them the land as He had promised. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us that that tabernacle that place where God uniquely dwells with man is now not in a building, but in the One to whom the building was pointing. Namely, the person of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that He asserts in the beginning of His Gospel. And now in chapter 2, He is demonstrating this truth through the words of Jesus Himself. He is showing us that the temple, the temple, the only place we can go to have access to the living God. The temple is the place and the only place where we can worship God in the presence of God. The place where we behold the power and the glory of God. Psalm 63.2 So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. The place of eternal satisfaction. Psalm 65.4 Blessed is the one you choose and bring to dwell in your courts we shall be satisfied with the goodness of Your house, the holiness of Your temple. The place where God hears the laments of His people. 
Psalm 18, verse 6, from His temple He heard my voice and my cry reached to His ears. That temple where the unique presence of God was has now forever been remade and relocated in the person of Jesus. The setting of this passage is shortly after Jesus has performed His miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, symbolizing, as we saw last week, the beginning of the age of the Messiah. After the wedding, Jesus, His family, His disciples spend some time in Capernaum. And shortly thereafter, we read that the annual Passover week begins. And so Jesus, along with His disciples, travel up to Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem, where all of the Passover festivities will be held. And when He gets to Jerusalem find Him going to the temple where we then find Him confronting the people who were in the temple. We read this in verse 14. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, there's actually not a problem with the existence of these people doing what they're doing. Selling pigeons, selling oxen, selling sheep. There's actually nothing in and of itself that's wrong with this. In fact, the reason they were doing this is because many of the people, especially during the Passover and the the other feast where people would travel from all over the different territories of the land of of Israel, and they would come into Jerusalem to to worship, they would would often need to bring a sacrifice and, and offerings. And it would be far too much. It would require far too much. It would require a caravan of sorts to bring all of your livestock from one territory to another so that you could Offer it. So a system was set up where you could sell your livestock in the territory you lived, and you could come and you could bring that money, and then you could exchange that money for sheep and oxen and pigeons so that you could have something to offer as a sacrifice at the temple. There's nothing wrong with that actual practice. It had been taking place for a very long time. There's nothing wrong with the money changers either. You have to remember this is, this is in Judea. They are under the dominion of the Romans. There's all kinds of different currency floating around in these territories. There's currency that's really well known from Tyre that's of pure silver and was to be worth more than other currency. And so if you were coming from one region to another, you had to do a money exchange. It's just like if you travel overseas, right? You're bringing... U.S. dollars and you come into Germany or England or somewhere like that, you have to exchange your U.S. currency for a euro. That's what they were there for. If they were bringing a financial contribution to the temple, their currency needed to be exchanged. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with these practices, but we find Jesus reacting to them very strongly. Look at verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So Jesus is furious, he's angry our understanding of Jesus includes or removes the idea that he could possibly be angry, let that be changed immediately here. 
Jesus is furious over what he is seeing. But why does he react this way? Well, he explains in verse 16. Verse 16 says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. He doesn't say, stop selling them. He's not abolishing the practice outright. He's saying, take them away. Remove this practice from where it is taking place now. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. The problem... The problem is that the worship of God is being treated as a cavalier thing by His very own people. Imagine that you are a pious Jew going to worship the living God in His temple in Jerusalem. You are preparing yourself for a tremendous, joyful, even fearful experience of entering into the unique presence of God. You are about to enter into the house of the God of Israel, the God whom you have grown up learning and hearing of His great, miraculous, powerful, divine works for His people. This is the God who has displayed His power in parting seas, in judging an entire nation of Egyptians, in rescuing the weakest among the weak people in the people of Israel. Israel, you are about to enter into the presence of God whom you have heard stories that if He is not worshipped in the right manner, you may die. Nadab and Abihu comes to mind offering false fire. This is not a God to whom you enter into His presence lightly. You're preparing yourself You have a sense of joy. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist says. You are readying yourself for true delight. You have a sense at the same time of a holy fear. You are about to bring sacrifices and offerings. You are about to see the shedding of blood and have a reminder of the reality of sin, the holiness of God. This is what you are are readying yourself to see, to be a part of. But when you actually come to the temple you find something completely different. When you come into the temple, Jesus' day, and like Jesus did, what you see is something completely the opposite. You see livestock walking all throughout the temple. You hear them. You hear the oxen. You hear them mooing. You smell them. smell of manure. You hear the pigeons fluttering all over the place. Wings. All of the different noises they're making. Probably some of them are getting away from their owners, flying around the temple. Lots of distraction. You see the money changers at their tables engaged in commerce. You hear clanging of coins and the exchange of the currency. People are talking probably about their business. How is business going? How many oxen have you sold this week? 
business is doing really good right now because it's the Passover week and people are coming from all over the place. This is where I am making my money. You hear that conversation going on between all of the tradesmen? Some of the tradesmen, no doubt, had some downtime like you do at any marketplace. Probably some people not buying anything from them, and so they might take a moment to have a nap. That's what you're seeing as you enter into this temple. You are in the place where the presence of God is to be enjoyed, and He is to be worshipped, and all you see is a marketplace. Worship had become corrupt. Not because there were corrupt trade practices taking place. There's no indication here that the actual tradesmen were engaged with any kind of underhanded business. became corrupt because the heart of the people as they're in the temple is far from God. You know what made it even worse? What made it even worse is that all of their activity was covered in a religious veneer. I mean, the idea was simple. People are coming here to worship. People need sacrifices. We are providing them a service to make their worship more convenient. Easy. We're providing them a religious service. So in the name of religious service, they created an environment of worship that wasn't about worshiping God at all. It was about their own self-interest. It was about their money. It was about their greed. And Jesus saw right into their heart. This people worship with their lips, and their hearts are far from me. There's a lot of that kind of worship now. Pious, religious, self interested worship. Worship that promises prosperity in the name of Jesus and only exists to enrich and to feed our sinful desires to become rich. There's plenty of that kind of worship, especially in our culture. It's worship aimed at giving life skills and making you a better you. That's what worship is about in a lot of places. I think the strangest, frankly, in our day is the kind of worship that's all about giving a certain kind of experience. It's the kind of worship that's aimed week in and week out through the music, through the message, maybe even through a cute comedy act to make you feel good and maybe even a little giddy while you're there. The idea is that this is the kind of experience you should have when you worship God. It should always be uplifting and warm and and make you just feel good about who you are. Now I get it. I, I get the idea behind it. No one wants to make anyone feel bad. You don't want to go on the opposite end of the spectrum and make worship all about making one feel miserable. But there is a right middle. There is a way to worship God in spirit and truth 
that's not focused upon one particular feeling or emotion or experience. And when worship is designed around making one simply feel giddy and happy, I just have to question if the worship of the Almighty should be about that. That sounds to me a little self-interested. But even more, I have a hard time squaring that kind of worship with the reality of biblical worship. So imagine again, you are a worshiper of God coming to the temple to do what? To worship. And you bring an offering of God. You have a sheep. And you go into that temple and you bring that sheep to the priest. You hear the sheep bang. This is perhaps, maybe, even one of the best out of your flock. One you know by name. You give this sheep to the priest. The priest takes the sheep and brings you over to the altar. And there you look at the altar and you see upon the altar blood dripping from the altar, probably flies buzzing around the altar, and the priest takes your offering and slaughters it right in front of you, and he takes the blood and he sprinkles the blood on the altar. Do you think you're going to feel giddy in that moment? there's going to be a lot of things that are going on. You're going to be looking at the blood upon that altar and you are going to have fear and trembling. You are going to see the blood of this innocent lamb and you are going to be reminded of the cost of the sin you have committed against this God. That this This is what it results in. Brutal wrath and anger and fury. Fear and trembling will be in your mind. But at the same time, you as you look at this offering are going to have joy because you are seeing that this God whom you have offended and sinned against has also given you the very substitute. The means by which your sins can be addressed and you not end up on the altar. It's quite an experience. Reminder. Holiness. Righteousness. Joy. True provision of God. You are going to have gratitude. You're going to have the whole gamut of emotion and experience. When we come to worship as New Covenant believers, should our experience be any different? When we come and we assemble and we gather together to worship Him who was slaughtered on a bloody cross... same experience should be there multiplied tenfold. We worship the very Lamb of God. And the kinds of sin that He addresses, the depths and the darkness of our hearts when our sins are forgiven and we gaze upon the Son of God as our Lamb in joy reminders of who God is and His holiness, fear, joy, grace, gratitude, thanksgiving, all of it. All of it. We create a kind of worship that is aimed at pleasing some particular kind of desire we have. We corrupt worship itself. Because true worship has God 
God in all of His power and glory and beauty and grace and mercy and justice and vengeance, all of who He is, that is the focus of worship. Not us. God. God is who we worship. The Jews had corrupted worship. And so Jesus cleansed the temple of its corruption. He removed all of the distractions. And when He did, John tells us that His disciples remembered what Psalm 69.9 said, zeal for your house will consume me. This was, this was something King David said when he himself was being persecuted for his desire to honor God in the temple. And the disciples saw David's future offspring, Jesus, doing the same. His actions reminded them of his great forefathers. King David. Well, as it is with any Reformation, those who were needing to reform didn't like what he had just done. So we read in verse 18 next, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now looking for a sign was not bad in and of itself, right? I mean, John, throughout his Gospel, is, is giving us signs for the purpose that we might come and believe that Jesus is who He said He is. Just last week, we saw, John says, this was the first of His signs. In a few weeks down the road, we will see the second of His signs. And we will see all of these people coming to Christ because of the signs He was doing. Jesus Himself has no issue with us looking at His signs and works. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 36, the works I do bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. That Jesus is calling our attention to His works and to His signs. So, There's nothing necessarily bad about desiring some kind of sign to confirm who Jesus is. The problem is not that they're asking for a sign. The problem with their request is that it's a challenge to His authority. They're not really curious. They're seeking a way to discredit Him. What right... Do you have Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary? What right do you have to come into this temple and disturb the way things have been for so long? Who are you? Show us a sign. What authority do you have to do this? So Jesus answers them, What we read beginning in verse 19 is not only a stunning claim about what He will do, but a stunning claim about what kind of authority He has. Read verses 19 to 21 with me. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Just like we've seen in other parts of John's Gospel and and like even again we will see with Nicodemus, there are two levels of communication here. The people whom Jesus is speaking to are only thinking in purely earthly terms. They are are only looking at exactly what is in front of them and not fully understanding or even attempting to grasp the full significance of what they had just witnessed. So Jesus is is speaking to them in kind of a heavenly level and they are speaking to Him at an earthly level. He says to them, you destroy this 
temple. And as John then explains, when he is talking about the temple, he is speaking about his body. They believe he is talking about the actual building. So in the midst of these two levels of communication, there are two major claims that are being made by Jesus. The first, of course, is that He is claiming that He will raise Himself up from the dead. Jews clearly didn't know what He meant. I don't think He was seeking to explain Himself in any way. He was making a statement. They didn't understand exactly what He meant. That's why they continue to go on and question Him about the impossibility of what He's talking about. They're thinking... It is impossible for you to raise up this temple in three days. It took us 46 years. And what they don't even realize, as miraculous as that would have been, to have raised up the literal, physical, brick-and-mortar temple in three days, Jesus is speaking about an even greater miracle. Resurrection of the dead. Jews didn't understand time. Neither did His disciples. We read later in verse 22, when therefore He was raised from the dead, when that happened, His disciples remembered that He had said this. It was only after Jesus had actually been raised from the dead that the light bulbs went on. He claims that He will raise Himself up from the dead. A tremendous claim. But second, He is claiming... He's claiming to have the authority to remake and relocate the temple in Himself. Now, in every relevant place of Scripture, it is only God who determines where He will be worshipped, and it is only God who determines who can build Him a temple. So in Deuteronomy Chapter 12, verse 5 and following, God is speaking to the Israelites through Moses. And He says to them, you, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. The Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. It would eventually become Jerusalem. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your offerings. And it goes on to say, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. To worship me, you will come to the place where I will choose. And that is where my presence will be made known. God determined where he would be worshipped. Later, once David had been established as the king of Israel, he wanted to build God a temple. David lived in a palace, and the place that you worshipped God in was a raggedy tent. So David wanted to build an elaborate temple. We read in 2 Samuel 7 that God rebukes him and tells him, I will raise up your offspring after you, and he shall build a house for my name. You, you don't determine who builds my house. I determine who builds my house. In every case, it is God who determines where he will be worshipped, how he will be worshipped, and who will build him a place of worship. And here in John 2, we find Jesus very clearly saying, you will destroy this temple and I, I will raise it up in three days. He is relocating the temple and rebuilding the temple in Himself. And thus He is asserting that He has the authority to build it. Remember that the central challenge here by the Jews is about what 
authority Jesus has in the first place to disturb the temple in the way He did. And Jesus answers this challenge by claiming to have the authority that only God Himself could have. I have the authority to determine where worship will be and to determine who will build the temple of God. The implication should be very clear. If you want to worship God in truth, if you want your worship to be acceptable, and you want your worship to be experienced in the way that it was designed to be, where do you go to worship? You don't go to Jerusalem. You don't go to Jerusalem looking for a temple because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And it's not coming back. I know there's many who believe that one day the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. I only ask why in the world would that ever happen? Jesus is rebuilding the temple and has rebuilt it in Himself. The temple only pointed to a greater temple to come. We should reject that notion. And part of the reason we should reject that notion is because what Revelation 21-22 says. John says he gets this vision seeing about the the end of all things and the culmination of the worship of God. And he says, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Where do you go to worship God? You go to the Lamb. You don't go to a particular place. You don't anticipate the rebuilding of a future structure. You go to Christ Himself. Where do you go to experience the worship that the Old Testament believers experienced? A day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. Gazing upon the beauty of God, my desire is to enter into Your house, O Lord. Where do you go for that? You go to the Lamb. Because the Lamb has become the temple. It's in the Lamb that you see the blood shed on the cross and you see the answer to the deepest need of sin being cleansed. In the Lamb, that you gaze upon the beauty of God and see the future that is to come, the power that is to be displayed in the resurrection itself and the remaking of all things. To worship God, friends, in truth is not about some external factors, different styles different experiences that are attempting to be made. True worship of God is about gazing with the eyes of your heart upon the temple of the living God in Jesus. John wants us to see the beginning. The beginning of the renewal of all things where God will be worshipped wherever, so long as it is through Christ. And He will continue to unfold this for us in the rest of His Gospel. As later we come in chapter 4 and we see the woman by the well and Jesus saying to her that a time is coming when you will not worship on Mount Gerizim and you will not worship in Jerusalem. You will worship in spirit and truth. That worship will come through Me because the temple has been rebuilt in Me. Is it any wonder why when Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 2, he describes it as a temple? 
with Christ being the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets being the foundation, and the rest of His people being built on that foundation. The temple has been remade into the body of Christ Himself. Both His literal body ascended in heaven, extended down to His spiritual body in the people of God. This is how we worship. This is the kind of worship the living God desires from us. Hearts that come to Christ with fear, trembling, joy, gratitude, focusing upon God as the supreme being over all. Let us make sure that whenever we gather to worship, we do not gather in some cavalier manner. Prepare our hearts. I just want to end with a short little example. This is nothing that has to be imitated exactly, but I thought this was done well. One particular church I visited one time, before you entered into their sanctuary, there was a sign that said, in a little bit nicer terms, be quiet before you enter wasn't to be rude, and it wasn't to say that there was anything about the particular sanctuary that was holy ground. They believed that Christ is the place that you worship God, not the actual structure itself. The idea is that before you come to worship in the presence of God, you prepare your heart. You go to God in prayer. Silence yourself before Him. You focus the eyes of your hearts on His promises, His truths, His grace. And you get ready to be in the presence of the living God. Practical, practical way of living out true, pure worship is pleasing to God. By no means something that has to be imitated everywhere, but something to think about. Even when we come here Sunday mornings, Prepare your hearts for worship. Do you pray with me?